sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Does religion have a place at the G20? Our guest today, Nicholas Miller, is an attorney, professor of church history at Andrews University, director of the Andrews University International Religious Liberty Institute. If I got that right, Nick, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Thank you, Alan. It's always good to be with you talking about the important issues facing religious freedom today. And I gather that you are headed to the G20 in a few weeks, and that you're going to make a pitch about the leaders of the nations of the world, the economic powers, giving some attention to religion and religious liberty issues, and giving a seat at the table, as it were. First of all, for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with the G20, what is it? What are its kind of basic goals? And then we can talk about why religion might have a place there. Sure, Alan. So the G20 stands for the gathering of the 20 largest economies in the world. And it stands as something in contrast to the G7, which are the seven largest economies in the world. And the other international group that actor is the United Nations. Now, some people point to the G20 as being a particularly useful place to create policy because the G7 is such a small number of nations. While they're very large in economic terms, they don't really represent a huge amount of the world's population. The United Nations, on the other hand, represents almost everybody, and so it's very bureaucratic, very complicated to get things done. Uh, that's an understatement. So the G20, you have the 20 largest economies in the world, which actually ends up representing something like 75% of the land space and 80% of the people in the world. So it's really very large. It's much more representative than the G7. But it's quite a bit smaller and much more manageable, and you can do things there in ways that you can't do at the United Nations. And it was started in the early 2000s, but it really came into its own with the economic crisis of 2008, when nations realized they had to learn to cooperate together very quickly for you know mutual survival. And so it meets every year, and they focus on questions of um, of urgency, right? The, what are the big, hard questions facing the world's leading economic nations? And so, of course, for the last year or two, the pandemic and the response to the pandemic has been near or at the top of the agenda. Um, I work with a group of religious organizations called the Interfaith Forum, representing not just Christian denominations, but a variety of religious groups. And they have been working on becoming formally affiliated with the G20, which has some formally affiliated groups, like there'll be a technology group and an environmental group that feed into the processes, the policy-making processes of the G20, so that those perspectives and voices can be heard at the table. And the idea is, is that even though the issues are economic and social, that these issues have an impact on religion and religious practice and religious conduct. And so religious voices and values 
need to be heard as a formal part of the process. And I met with this interfaith group in Madeira, Italy, in May, where the pre-meetings for the G20 were happening, and the foreign ministers from all the countries of the G20 were gathered, and we met with some representatives from that group to talk about how we could put together the most effective application for this interfaith religious group. And then several of us are returning to the actual meetings in September, where we can present our application process and continue our discussions. So you and I come from a historic Protestant tradition that advocates a separation between church and state. Obviously, in many countries of the world, religion has a much more prominent role to play in the cultures and in the politics of nations. How do you see religion having a role to play with the G20? So that's a great question because, you know, this could cut two ways, couldn't it? We could be nervous about religious people wanting to impose religious visions and viewpoints on the governments of the world. And the group that I'm working with is very conscious of this concern. We're all very strong supporters of religious freedom. But I think that many people mistake an institutional separation of church and state for the separation of morality from governmental affairs. And, you know, as we've seen uh, problems in government and uh, the need for, during the pandemic, for instance, as government opens and shuts down particular activities in society, they are making moral assessments about the importance of certain activities and conduct. And institutions that only value economic output or economic impact tend to put, you know, activities that are money producing at the top of the essential list. And for them, churches and religious organizations not producing money, at least in significant amounts for society and, and the GDP output are devalued and put in second or third tier categories. And so it's not about imposing one's religious values on social policy as it is having a social policy that is constructed in a way that's sensitive and takes into account religious people and religious values, and also allowing religious people to have input into moral calculations that are being made in social policy. So is that a distinction? You know, I think that's this distinction between imposing particular religious points of view versus creating public policy that is sensitive and aware of religious conviction and religious peoples and taking them into account. And religion needs a voice at the table for that to happen, or they just get overlooked and sidelined. In listening to your discussion, I'm reminded in how my own denomination deals with the most diverse church body in the United States in terms of ethnic diversity, nationality diversity, and how we work purposely to be as inclusive as possible in administration, in leadership, so that we make sure that all of the diverse parts of our community, their perspectives and voices and needs are taken into consideration. And certainly the faith community in the scope of of our global community is very significant. The vast majority of the global population are part of some faith community. And yet 
religion has long been a very neglected part of policy, right? No, that's absolutely right. It's, you know, modern secular policymaking revolves around economic numbers, um, GDP output. And what people are discovering is that values like environmental concerns, stewardship, the treatment of peoples, all of these things that religion has traditionally spoken to gets short shrift. And if we let some religious people back into the room, I mean, you mentioned the church we belong to and the value we have for separation of church and state. That's true. But you yourself have an associate in your office that works in the political capital of California and is a lobbyist and makes the rounds and wants to have the church's voice heard, usually things related to religious freedom for sure, but also other values of the church Well, when we see fit. So this kind of connection and speaking to policy is important. If we abandon all of that and we hide behind the door somewhere, we find that all sorts of laws are passed that you know, oppress us or don't take into account our concerns and interests. And so seeking for a place at the table to comment on and influence policy is something that religion has to do in this increasingly secular day and age. You know, I didn't know where this subject was going to take us, Nick, but I'm inclined to invoke the kind of traditional biblical view of the church playing a prophetic function. Because I think this is something that here in the United States anyway, the evangelical community has largely misunderstood and misapplied. Because to me, the prophetic function is not to seek power, but to speak truth to power. And it you know, functions with the basic premise that no society is ever going to meet God's standard. And that the role of the church is always going to be to call people and communities to a higher moral and spiritual standard, but never to be co-opted by the status quo of power and simply become kind of an endorser of the status quo. Yeah, I think that's well put. I had a, a friend over the weekend who talked about why he went to secular schools and you know Stanford and University of Texas why he stayed a Christian, why he stayed an Adventist. And one of the things that he appreciated about the Christian religion and the biblical religion was that it was willing to criticize religion, right? The Old Testament prophets spoke against the powers that be, both civil as well as religious. And that is the key to sort of prophetic religion, that it's not bound up with the powers that be, but it stands outside them. And it's not anarchist. It doesn't view the powers as inherently and completely evil, but it calls them to a higher standard of justice and fairness. And yes, religion can't allow itself to be co-opted, but neither can allow itself to become irrelevant and ignored, right? That it, it needs to be at the table. You know, you know, if religion is allowed to show up at G20, the challenge is to... Uh, to not get co-opted somehow, which is so easy. I think back, um, our listeners, many will recognize the name Chuck Colson, but may not recall that his second book after he published Born Again was a book called Kingdoms in Conflict, where he issued a very stark warning about how readily clergy, how easily they're manipulated by politicians and co-opted. 
And in fact, there's a, a marvelous PBS documentary about the life of Billy Graham. And at the end of his life, I think he really repented of the degree to which he had become co-opted by politicians. Yeah, I remember that book very much as well. And one of my hopes for our G20 experiment is that the group really does have a twofold focus. One is on bringing the religious voices to the table to be able to be part of the policymaking process. But the second is the group has a decided commitment to promoting and articulating the importance of freedom of religion and belief as a group. And so if those two things are done together, if policy is promoted but only done so in the light of also creating maximum freedom of religion and belief for religious minorities, I think it will help keep in perspective the kind of contribution that, that this group should make. And I should add that we're fairly, we're optimistic about achieving this status. The meetings are in Italy this year. The Italian government is obviously familiar with having strong religious voices in their country, taking the Pope seriously. And the following year, next year, it's in Indonesia, which is actually one of the most religious countries in the world. They have a cabinet officer position that is minister of religion. It is equivalent to our secretary of state, a very highly placed position because of all the deeply held religious views in that country. And so the thought that there would be a formal religious voice at the table is actually very familiar to them and in fact attractive. And there's already been some discussions with them ahead of time with some people from our group. And we're quite optimistic that this official designation may well take place. And Adventists would be part of this group that have a voice. You know, Eschatolot, last time events, prophetic events, we believe things are going to happen internationally in relation to freedom and worship. And we as Adventists need to have a voice at that table. We want you to keep us posted. We're out of time. We've been talking about faith groups participating at the G20. Our guest today, Professor Nicholas Miller. Thanks, as always, for being with us, Nick. Yes, thanks, Alan. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring. <laughs>